we are going to change up um, our discussion to going from narrative. We're going to go to poetry. And I know all of you love poetry so much more than narrative. And we will get to the Song of Songs. I, we, matter of fact, I probably should have just taken all three sessions and just did the song, but I didn't want to do that uh, to you. But we will do that the last session, and that will guarantee keep you awake uh, for dinner for, for sure. Some have suggested that 75% of the Old Testament is poetry. 75%. Reichen observes that one-third of our entire Bible is poetic. And that's usually accompanied with a groan. <laughs> really, Lord? But if we ask another way, you know, why did God choose to communicate in poetry? I mean, when was the last time you read a poem for pleasure? All right, let, let's do this way. Who has read a poem for pleasure? <laughs> I right, leave your hands up. I want to see something. They lie. They lie. They lie. <laughs> All right, that's not... You folks are more educated than the people I normally deal with then. I normally can't get, you know, five people to raise their hand. And I'm not talking about Hallmark store cards, poems. Okay. I'm Casey at the bat. No, I'm not talking about that one either. Or roses are red, violets are blue. All right. I'm talking about Shelley. I'm talking about, you know, those Witten and those guys. See, we've really lost our appreciation for poetry. And we really wish that God really would have just told us in lines, declarative sentences. We're much better. Matt, you know, we don't like the law, but some of us wouldn't mind, just give me the list. Lord, now you told me narrative, I have to figure out narrative. Now you're telling me poetry, I have to figure out poetry. Really, Lord? You know how you created me. I'm not that bright. And you're making it much more difficult. Now for those pastor types of us, we have to get up and look like we know what we're saying about poetry on Sunday morning. And there's always that English teacher sitting in the back. You know, when you start using words like sonectoki. And she'll say, good, you pronounced it right. Can't spell it, but I can at least say it because I practiced it. Alter answers the question, why poetry? The Psalms, of course, poems written out of deep and often passionate faith. The poetic medium made it possible to articulate the emotional freight, the moral consequences, the altered perception of the world that flowed from this monotheistic belief in compact verbal structures that could, in some instances, seem simplicity itself. And notice what he's saying is that the emotional freight... Now, this is words that in our camps we've shot away from. We don't want to deal with the emotions. And I would suggest that poetry, the Psalms, and Proverbs are based on emotions. And even Paul, if we jump to the New Testament, I used it yesterday, Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. That's an emotional term. 
Now, granted, we don't want people making emotional decisions, but there's nothing wrong with appealing to the emotion. You folks are motivated by your emotions. I won't say what group I was overhearing, because it's unpolite to say you're listening to a conversation, right? But some guys this morning were talking about their enjoyment of bowling. That's an emotion, isn't it? Anything wrong with enjoying bowling? Yes. yes. <laughs> Let me throw this hard ball down this aisle. Let's see what happens when I throw it down. I mean, that's, come on, that's a great pastoral sport. Because you look at those pins and you say, yep, you're that person, you're that person, you're that person. It just, it works very well. But we know that poems do make a difference. And I'm going to show you a poem that you all know. And I bet you at one point in your life, you were all moved by it. Why? When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, Whatever my lot, you have taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. 1871, Spafford wrote this. You know the backstory, but the question is, why does this still get sung today? And it's not because, hey, we have to keep the hymns going. This gets sung today in contemporary services. Why? It captures the emotion. And if you've gone through a hard time in life and you want to say to God afresh that even though I'm going through this hard time, even though my situation is not like Spafford's saved alone, this, this becomes my heart and it expresses my heart. And that's the key to poetry. You know, no prose could capture as well a father's heart, his grief, and his trust. We sing this, and we love it. And you'll see people crying in your churches because they've been moved. See, that's what poetry can do. It allows us to take the experience of another and transfer it to our experience. And even though, heavens forbid, you've lost somebody to drowning, but you've gone through other deep waters, haven't you? And we still sing this song. But when we come to the Sunday morning pulpit, we seem to forget that. So this is how we tend to deal with poetry. I asked them to take a poem and hold it up to the light like a color slide or press an ear against its hive. I say drop a mouse into a poem and watch him probe his way out or walk inside the poem's room and feel the walls for a light switch. I want him to water ski across the surface of a poem, waving at the author's name on the shore. But all they want to do is tie the poem to a chair with a rope and torture a confession out of it. They begin beating it with a hose to find out what it really means. (laughs) 
and most of us pastors, we have a hose. <laughs> and what we'll do, we'll take that hose out, we'll get that Old Testament poetry, and we'll beat it into a narrative sermon, <laughs> whether it likes it or not. And we'll strip it of its emotion. We'll strip it of its contours. And we'll flatten it out. Oh, that poem, it has three points, whether it has nine points, doesn't matter. Now, it makes it difficult because I'm dealing with the poem. So how do I have three points and I end with a poem on a poem? That becomes awkward. Why poetry? A biblical poem is the poet's experience of his world with God in a moment of time. Through the poet's words, the reader is able to make his experience their own. We, as believers, should love poetry. Because it speaks our hearts. It speaks our experiences. Reichen says, poets speak in the manner that most accurately communicates their message. This is simply a vote of confidence that we need to give to the poet. So why poetry? Because God said, this best fits what I want to communicate. But it takes some special qualities and special tools to interpret poetry. So before we get into poetry specific or the psalm specifically or the song specifically, I want to go over just some general guidelines as we talked about these poems. Bitcoin is expression world with God in time. We just saw that one. So let's go through here. Some general guidelines. Number one, be careful over exegeting poetry. And what I mean by this, let's look at this psalm. The heavens are telling the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Now, I'm going to go over this a little bit more. But this is called the line of Hebrew poetry. This is not two lines. This is one line. You say, Mark, there's two lines up there. I know my math. Now you're confusing me. Poetry doesn't go by math? It doesn't. See, in, we're used to narrative as a sentence is a complete thought unit. In poetry, it's the two lines together. So if I ask you a question, how many things is a poet saying here? Thank you, one. And the way he's doing it is through... The heart of Hebrew poetry is called parallelism. The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and what's more, their expanse is declaring the works of his hands. And again, we're going to go over this more, but just keep that idea of parallelism in your mind. There's always an intensification from line A to line B, or as Krugel would say, A. What's more? And we'll go over that in a little bit. Remember, you are reading ancient poetry. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Is God a literal rock? In Pennsylvania, we have rocks. Okay, when we were buying a home, moving from New Jersey, in New Jersey, we have sand. Then I take my shovel, I go into the dirt, I can dig anywhere. I came up to Pennsylvania, and my real estate agent said, you like to plant stuff? My wife said, oh, yeah, my husband plants anything I want, which is true. 
And he says, get a pickaxe. He's like, come on, really? I almost broke my foot on the shovel. Then I went out and bought a pickaxe. Because we have rocks. Now, if I'm saying, okay, if I take that idea of rock and take it to the text and say, well, God's this little rock. What's he talking about? We need to understand that we're reading ancient poetry and he's using the language. This rock here is more like Gibraltar than maybe the rocks we find in our, our parking lot. He's my shield. I mean, how many, well, you guys are pastors. How many, even on Sunday morning, walk into their pulpit with a shield? You know, we don't walk around with shields much anymore. But you can use them sometimes. Yeah, we've all preached those messages. Realize that the Psalms are of several different types of genre. We cannot always flatten all the poetry into one. Longman states there are seven different types of psalm genres alone. And we'll look at one of those in our next session. You can't look at a lament psalm the same way as you look at a Thanksgiving psalm. You can't look at the poetry of psalms the same way you look at the poetry of Proverbs. You can't look at the poetry of Proverbs the same way you look at the poetry of Ecclesiastes or Song of Songs. Each psalm must be read as a literary unit. I mean, can you imagine this verse being taken out of context? He who sits in the heavens laugh, the Lord scoffs at them. Now, I'm talking about context, but could you imagine being a new believer and someone just tells you this? You may think, is God laughing at me? But we have to be able to keep the context together. Whoops. Sorry, my PowerPoint just died unexpectedly. That's what happens when you trust technology. Appreciate the form. The Bible is an effective book that communicates much of its meaning by moving the feelings and the will of its readers. Notice we talked about this yesterday. Move the motions and the will. And readers must be careful not to depoesize its form by ignoring its literary conventions. And sometimes, again, we do want to flatten out, but we need to appreciate that this book is meant to move feelings and also move the wheel. It's not one without the other. Next, determine who is speaking. Is it God? Is it the psalmist? Is he speaking for himself? Is he speaking for Israel? Many times, if you know who's speaking, now you can determine, like Psalm 1, it seems like no one specific is speaking. It seems like it's a wisdom psalm or maybe a Torah psalm. And it seems like, say, follow my example. Psalm 90, the psalmist is talking for the community. Psalm 2, 79, 83, 89, the psalmist seems to be speaking for Israel and it suggests that it's eschatological in purpose and dispensational aspects. 
And always watch for the change of voices in the poetry. Because this is a poetic device that the poet often used, especially in the song. We'll see this afternoon. He moves from second person to first person and does it for a very specific reason. See, determine if the psalm is personal or corporate. Now, this is very important when I think we come to preaching and sharing our text. Because we always, in our preaching, we want the text to resonate with each person. But let me offer a challenge. What if the psalm is a corporate psalm to the whole community? What, for instance, if it is a lament psalm to the community? So God wants this psalm to apply to the whole and lament together. But sometimes what we do is we take a lament psalm and I make it apply to you, to you, to you, but not as a group. And at that point, I believe we violate the purpose of the psalm. So watch to see who the psalm is written to. You know, determine the historical context by observing the situation in the titles, if we can. Now, this is where we really want to become creative. So Psalm 51 Without even looking at it, what's that superscription say? A psalm of David when he did what? When he went into Bathsheba. There we know that that psalm was written based on that time and that situation. Longman suggests that if the superscriptions are not original, they're at least old and reliable. However, if you look at Psalm 32, which a number of scholars put together with Psalm 51, what is the superscription for Psalm 32? Well, Psalm 32 talks about, blessed is the man who has his sins forgiven. But what is the superscription in Psalm 32? Someone look it up. That's verse 1. What's the superscription? That's it. There's no historical situation. So what does that mean? We go find it. We respect the silence of God. Since God didn't tell us, he wants this to go across a specific historical situation. But many want to tie this to David and said, oh, this is David writing after his time with Bathsheba because his sins was forgiven. Well, yes, his sin was forgiven with Bathsheba, but do you think the boy ever sinned another time? (laughs) Yes. So this is probably just another time. And the reason it helps us is because if it's situational specific, then we tend to look for that situation in our lives and the lives of our people before we apply it. Check the emotional orientation of the psalm. I mean, if you look at Psalm 13, what's the emotional tenor of that voice? How long, O Lord, how long? How long will you forget me? How long will you hide your face from me? How long will I have sorrow in my heart all the day? Well, that's a lament. That's clear. But see, by taking the emotional tenor of the psalm, we can figure out what kind of psalm it is. And along with that goes with determine the genre. 
because there's a number of genres of psalms that have specific elements that we should be looking for when we take these things out and exegete them and then go to present them to our, our church. And I'll show some of these in our next session when we talk about the lament psalms. Observe reoccurring or theologically significant phrases or words in the Psalms. So, for instance, in Psalm 119, what's a reoccurring or theologically significant phrase in Psalm 119? Just shout it out. The law? What else? Precepts? There's tons of synonyms, and they're all for the what? The Word of God. That's significant. In Psalm 119. What about Psalm 19? What's significant, theologically significant in Psalm 19? Natural revelation. But we have to be careful bringing our systematic theology in, but we see that the heavens tell. And then when we see what the heavens tell, then we see what the world tells. And then what the law tells. So it's really fascinating to see that dynamic. Recognize the rhetorical devices of the Psalms. But we have to remember, though, that our Psalms do not look like poetry like this. I'm going to take you back to sixth, seventh grade, the Italian sonnet. You remember it, right? A, B, B, A, A, B, B. That means each line is given a letter, and that means the first two lines of this poem by Wordsworth, the last of the words do not rhyme, but the first and fourth and fifth do, and the last do. Now, you have this memorized, so we won't bother reading this because (laughs) this is a classic poem. Now, what happens? Why don't we have Italian sonnets anymore? Well, we do, but why does anybody not write in them? Because it was overused. Everyone was doing it. They were doing an iambic pictameter. You said, yes, right, whatever you say, Mark, that's fine. (laughs) See, any poet worth his salt comes along on the shoulder of other poets and says, I'm going to break this pattern. And even our own Old Testament poets do the same thing. There is a pattern for lament psalms. But even David, when he gets to a different lament psalm, he'll change the form. He'll move things around. It's really fascinating to watch. So we'll expect the same thing. We need to understand poetic terms. Stichography. This is a setting out of the ancient text into lines of poetry. And this is important because our Bibles do it now. We almost take it, we take it for granted. But in the 50s and before, all the poetry of the Old Testament was put into paragraph form, which is a mistake against its genre. And even now, you'll see some that even take the lines and still put it in narrative fashion which breaks up the understanding of the lines. So it's very important to maintain the stichography. The next is one of the most, is the, the most important, parallelism. We have to understand parallelism. This is how the poet communicates. Some suggest that this is the heart 
of Hebrew poetry. It's a literary pattern that states an idea in one line and focuses more closely on the same idea in the following line, either repeating a thought in different terms or focusing on the thought more specifically. That's okay, but there's even more to it than that. Uh, One Old Testament scholar thought he was funny and went like this. The verse of the Hebrew Bible is strange. The meter of Psalms and Proverbs perplexes. It's not a matter of numbers, no counting of beats or syllables. Its song is a music of matching. Its rhythm, a kind of paralleling. One half line makes an assertion. The other half line paraphrases. Sometimes a third part will vary it. And he's absolutely correct. Some way of doing it. Kugel suggests A line, what's more, B line. Whenever I read poetry, Old Testament poetry, I'm always reading the first line, and I'm always saying this, A line, what's more, B. There's either a what's more or there's an intensification. Please don't fall into the old rut of just saying it's synonymous, it's saying the same thing. Do we really think God's wasting words? We believe in plenary inspiration, do we not? Every word. And we really want to say, no, we can throw this line away because God already said it. If you want to say that, please step over there. And I'm going to be over here away from any electronic equipment because when God strikes you with a lightning bolt, which you deserve, that should happen. We have to understand the text. Some suggest that there is synonymous parallelism which is a type of parallelism where it is not exact but nuanced, similar but intensified. Antithetic parallelism. You understand this in Proverbs. How do we know the antithetic parallelism here? It always comes in the beginning of verse, in the second line. A joyful heart makes a cheerful face, but the Vav, the vav contrasts. But when the heart is sad, the mind of the intelligent seeks knowledge, but they're all antithetic parallelism. And that what it's telling you is a line, a joyful heart makes a cheerful face. What's more, the opposite side, because antithetic, but the heart is sad. The spirit is broken. Now, I don't want you. What in the world? Yes, yes, exactly. Wandering the desert. I'm so sorry. <laughs> yeah, may, maybe I'm the one that said something wrong. It'll teach you, McGinnis. I'm not a big one on saying there are specific categories. I think Chisholm is r- closer to the truth. He says that each line either is reiterative, synonymous, specifying, complementary, explanatory, progressive, consequential, comparative, contrast. Now, I'm going to give you an exam on these at the end of the session. The last sentence is the most important. The important issues to remember is determine the relationship between the first and subsequent lines. That's all you need to know. Whatever you call it is fine. The key, though, is to recognize the relationship. So here, let's practice. Now, this is Psalm 1. It's a very 
familiar psalm. I did make a mistake because that north citizen seat of the scoffers, this is actually a tricolon. So there's three lines, not a bicolon. And it's normal, almost 65% of the time, you're just going to see a bicolon. Tricolon is an unusual way to start poetry. So let's do A line. How blessed is the man who's not walk in the counsel of the wicked. That's A line. B line, nor stand in the path of sinners. C line, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. So what do we see as we move from A line, what's more B line, what's more C line? So blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. What's more stands in the path of sinners. What's more sit. So what's the relationship between those three lines? Just shout it out. There's parallel. Yes. Addition. What's the intensification? It's getting even, getting even stronger, I think. Based on how do we know it's getting stronger? Yes. You see, he's paralleling the verbs for us. And he's doing, look it. We're walking together. We stand. And now I'm just going to sit down with you. See, and all he, the writer here wants us to see, do you see the progression in the psalm, and we have to understand he's pointing out through parallelism, this is what I want you to see. This progression. So there's a progression, there's an intensification of walking to dwelling. Now put that off to our side mentally. Let's go to verse 2. A line, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and what's more, his law he meditates day and night. So what's the relationship in 2A and 2B? Someone just said it. B defines A. That's one way. What's another way? There's intensification. What else? What's that? Reverse order. Okay. Specification, yes. Uh, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. How are you going to demonstrate that someone delights in the law? He meditates day and night. So when someone comes to you and says, I love the Lord, I love his word, and you say, oh, yeah, what are you reading today? Oh, I didn't read his word today. <laughs> what you read yesterday? Oh, I didn't read his word yesterday. When was the last time you opened up the word? Oh, I just love God. Wait wait a minute. This is somebody who meditates. Now, it doesn't say read. It says meditates. Someone who thinks over and over and over on the word. But we see a specification. Now, there's not only parallelism between the lines within the verse, but also between verse 1 and verse 2. What's the relationship? It's contrary, it's contrast, it's antithetic parallelism. So you have parallelism that goes across not only within the line itself, but between the lines of the poem. This is clearly stating, hey, the blessed man, he doesn't do these things. That's the negative in verse 1. What are the things he does do? He delights in the law. He doesn't walk here. 
But he does do this. And could it be that if you don't walk, hopefully you are in the Word? And that's a natural outcome for this blessed man. Now we verse 3. And he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water. What's more will yield its fruit in its season. What's the relationship there? Result, sequence, any other words? Progression. Progression. You're all absolutely right. And if you want to become famous, now just write your book saying, my way is the right way, and you can be an Old Testament scholar. And he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water. What's more, yield its fruit in season. This poet is artistic. Notice how he goes from man in verse 1 and 2. Now he's changing into this metaphor of fruit bearing. And he's going to continue it in 3. Now he goes to the next. And what happens? And its leaf does not wither. And what's more, whatever he does prospers. Notice he maintains the the agricultural metaphor in three lines, then moves out in the fourth line. This is pure poetry. So its leaf does not wither. What's more, whatever he does, he prospers. What's the relationship there? Antithetical? Possibly. I would, I would say not, but hold on to that. Someone else? What's the relationship? This one is definitely a tougher one. I would suggest it's specification because he's taking a metaphor of the leaf not withering and if leaf doesn't wither, what does it look like? It's healthy. What does a man that's leaf isn't withering? What does he look like? He's prospering. See, what you have to do, maintain that relationship and understand the metaphors. So he'll be like a tree planted by streams of water which yield its fruit in season and his leaf does not wither, and whatever he does, he prospers. Now, what I like in verse 3, he will be like a tree. That's a simile, and we're going to get to similes in a few minutes. Planted by streams of water. Now, not you pastors, but I've heard other pastors say, the one who doesn't walk with sinners, who delights in the law, he plants himself by streams of water. Not that you have to agree that you've heard that, but then you just nod your head. So, Ladies especially, just don't give your husband, like, yeah, you've said that. <laughs> but you've heard that. That's not what the text is saying. For those of you who have Hebrew, verse 3, and we can catch it in English, it's a passive. It's a cow passive. So what it means is the subject is not doing the action, the subject is being acted upon. So if you don't walk with sinners, and if you delight in the law, somehow, i.e. God, takes you and plants you by irrigation ditches so that you always need the nourishment to continue to prosper. Isn't that great? We do this, and God does that, that we can continue to grow. Wow. Poetry is great stuff. The wicked, uh uh-oh, are not so. 
what happens? Well, here's the antithetical. They are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Notice how he takes now the wicked person and he brings back the agricultural metaphor. Hey, the righteous man, he prospers. Whatever he does, he prospers. But the wicked, whoa, what are they like? They're, they're like agricultural product, but like the chaff. And we know what the chaff is, that outside of the seed, right? It breaks up and we throw it up in the wind. The seed falls down and the wind takes the chaff and where does it blow it? Yep, from here to New Jersey is what happens. That wind just carries it across. And this is how, oh, then we have that last line. Therefore, and it ends maybe with this monocolon, the wicked will not stand in judgment nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. This is how we have to read poetry. We have to see how the lines of poetry are put together. And the reason this is important is in narrative, we have verbs that help us maintain the narrative flow. And since we've been talking in Hebrew, it's the Vav consecutive. That helps us understand where the narrative starts, where it ends, where it goes online, offline. In poetry, you don't have Vav consecutives. So how is the poem held together and not go flying off in every different direction? We say, Mark, that's easy. It's one psalm. You are absolutely correct. It's one psalm. The difficulty, what happens when you get into Isaiah when you have the whole book and you're trying to find the pericope of that poem or Ecclesiastes or Song of Songs? It becomes more difficult to know how it holds together. And the way it holds together, its cohesion is created by this parallelism. And we have to understand how these how this dynamic parallelism functions in poetry. All right, so let's go back. So we talked about parallelism a little bit. Now we have to go to stanza. Stanza is the logical unit, smaller than the entire psalm, and it's determined by subject matter, structure marker, such as refrains. If you go back to narrative, it is equal to a paragraph. Poetic line, not sentence, poetic line, equals the narrative sentence and the stanza equals the paragraph. I'm sorry, I'm a professor, so I'm going to have to give you a test. I want you to look at Psalm 19. And I want you to tell me how many stanzas are in that poem. Okay, I heard the first number. I hear six. And let's throw out some other numbers. Five. How many? Three. I heard somebody say one. Five. A hundred. 
<laughs> two. All right. We have one, two, three, five, six. Who's right? Because the key is you have to be able to put this in the stanza because the stanza, just like the paragraph, is for me my smallest sense unit. Now, I know a sentence completes a single thought, but we don't know that sentence fits together with other sentences unless it's in a paragraph. The same with a stanza. We have to be able to say this stanza completes a thought. So if you look at Psalm 19, now it depends what translations you're using. New American Standard only has two. And I hate to say it, but I think they're wrong. However, if you look at verses 1 through 6, I do believe they get it right there. Because there is a change of theme. Then we go 7, and I would suggest 7 goes down to... Some suggest 9. I would suggest 11. And the reason I'm doing this is because of the use of the third person. If you notice, you could possibly break it at between 9 and 10 because it talks about the fear of the Lord, the judgments of the Lord. Then it moves to a third person. They are more desirable. 11, by them, the servant is warned, in keeping them. So I'm going to keep it. It seems to be one theme for me. I'm going to put those together. But it seems now we have a change when verse 12 13 and 14, because now David is going to go back to the first person. Notice what he says in verse 12. Who can discern his errors? Rhetorical question. Acquit me of hidden faults. See, that change of person normally is a structural marker that tells us this is a change of stanza. Not all the time, but it just seems to fit. So now if you did this psalm and if you know the stanza, now you know your main preaching points. But if you follow New American Standard, you only have two preaching points. Short Sunday, right? Here, if you go 1 to 6, 7 to 11, 12 to 14. And what that'll help you do is to keep your thoughts together and say, my thoughts have to go with these verses 12, 13, and 14 together. I think it'll make your teaching and preaching better by able to see the stands and say, these go together and are developing one idea. So that's why I believe the stanza is so vitally important. Hem, I stitch or colon is one line. If you read the scholars, they have a number of different terms for a line of Hebrew poetry, and sometimes it gets confusing. Hem, I stitch is half a stitch, not sewing. Bicolon, this is what we're used to. And this is what you may see mostly, although some call it die stitch. Bicolon, two lines of Hebrew poetry. But you can have a tricola as well. Now, I did not, don't think I wrote it down. You can have a monocolon. This is where you see it in Psalm. Praise the Lord. The Psalm will start off. And then the Psalm will end, praise the Lord. That's a monocolon, meaning one line or literally a half a line. Bicolon is more used than tricolon and monocolon less than those two. All right, now this is where it's going to get fun. 
simile. So let's continue to have some fun. In Psalm 1-3, where's the simile? Like a tree. So a simile is a what? Simile is a comparison using like or as. So you see Psalm 1-4, the wicked are not so, they are like chaff. Psalm 22 is interesting. They open wide their mouths at me, New American Standard, as a ravening and roaring lion. Now be careful saying that this is a simile. In English, it's a simile, but in Hebrew, the simile is not, the like is not there. So it would be read simply as, but they are, I'm sorry, they open wide their mouths at me, a raving and roaring lion. So did the, the translators made a choice to move it from a simile to a metaphor. Throw your Bibles out. They blew it when it came to grammar. See, it's still a comparison, although I think the metaphor is a stronger comparison. So just be careful by saying it's a simile. It's a simile in English for sure, but not necessarily in Hebrew. The metaphor. The metaphor is a comparison between two unlike objects without using like or as. However, it's more than a simile without like or as. It's a transfer of quality from one thing to another. You know, metaphors rely on imagery. At the same time, the imagery is both concise and vague. Uh, Riken says that all thinking is the process of metaphors. Metaphors and similes are not poetic devices. They are new ways of thinking and formulating realities. A literary uh, critic, Fry, flats, stately flats, we clearly have to consider the possibility that metaphor is not only incidental ornament of biblical language, but one of its controlling modes of thought. And he is absolutely correct, especially when it comes to poetry. Psalm fifty nine seventeen, O oh, my strength, I will praise to you, for God is my stronghold. Well, you have to ask the question, how is God my stronghold? What quality of stronghold is the poet wanting to convey now to God? And that's one thing we have to determine. What is it? But remember, it's ancient Near East poetry. We can't be saying, well, this is like Fort Knox. Well, is it? We have to be careful. We have to go back and make the picture the way the ancients would have understood the picture. Steve talked about it. Psalm 22. Let's just leave it in the context of David. For dogs have surrounded me. All right. Are they real dogs? I mean, I had a paper route when I was a kid. And I feel David here. I'm saying it could be real dogs and I'd be just as afraid. But notice a line for dogs have surrounded me. What's more, the intensification of Evil band of evildoers have encompassed me. So what he's trying to do there is these evildoers, they have the same characteristics as dogs. And he's not thinking poodle. (laughs) He's not even thinking of any of our pets, right? These are probably wild dogs that don't have licenses, don't have shots or anything. And what do these dogs do? They pierce my hands and my feet. 
Anybody ever bitten by a dog? What kind of puncture mark? What kind of wound do they leave? They pierce. It's a puncture wound. See, that's what he's saying. This is what they have done to me. And I suggest here that maybe even David got an arrow through the hand. He was telling his friends, hey, guys, come over here. The enemy's over. Whoop. Whoa, man, that hurt. You know, there's, that could have happened to David. Here's an interesting one. Ellipsis. It's the omission of some word in a line of poetry, but it's assumed to be there. So this is looking for something that's not there. Anybody here good at that? Looking for something that's not there? So Psalm 36, 6. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are a great deep, O Lord. You preserve man and beast. Now, depending what Bible you're using for Psalm 36, 6, they may put the like into the second line. But the like is not there. He wants you, to, by ellipsis, he wants you to carry the information from line one to line two. Psalm 100 is a little bit easier to see. Look at verse four of Psalm 100. Where's the ellipsis between line one and line two? Yes, enter is left out. Enter his gates with thanksgiving, his courts with praise. See, we read enter in the second line because that would make sense. But enter his gates with thanksgiving, what's more, his courts with praise. Now, some suggest the ellipsis is functioning as ballast material that just balances the line. No, I don't think so. By leaving out one part from the line before, the poet is able to add additional information. Or sometimes he is going for brevity. Hyperbole. You know what hyperbole is, right? My husband's the best pastor in the world. Is that true or is hyperbole? No, no, if my wife's saying it, it's true. Come on. See, it's hyper, it's an exaggeration. Exaggeration of some kind of u- using common language. Zogbo defines it as a figure of speech that makes use of an exaggeration, a deliberate overstatement to create a special effect. So look at Psalm 69.4. Those who hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of my head. Now, I don't think David is saying he's bald so you can count them. Look it, I think I have three hairs, I have three enemies. Now, four enemies. Now, what is he saying? More than the hairs of my head. That's even a phrase we use today. And what's it mean? A whole lot. Matter of fact, a whole lot of a lot. If we're being honest. Psalm 141.7, as when one plows and breaks open the earth, our bones have been scattered at the mouth of Shehol. Our bones have been scattered at the mouth of Shehol. Where is that hyperbole? They're alive, so they're not really dead. They're alive. Their bones can't be scattered. He's speaking. 
Our bones have been scattered. Well, that's a neat trick. What do you have? Just this mouth over here speaking? You know, it's hyperbole. And that's what exactly what the author wants us to see. Psalm 78, 27. He rained meat upon them like dust, even winged flour like the sand of the sea. Man, if you like poultry, this is the dinner you wanted to be at until it came out your nose and you realized it was too much. But it was like the dust. How many birds is that? If it's like dust, that's a whole lot. Mirism. Psalm 49. This is when the individual unit stands for the entire entity. Two opposites, extremes, equal the whole. In the Bible, we see this from Dan to Beersheba. It's our way of saying the whole land of Israel. What's our, if we have a geographical mirrorism, what would it be for the country? From sea to shining sea. From California to New York. Maine to Florida. And we see this. So Psalm 49. For the choir director, a psalm of the sons of Korah, hear this, all people, give ear, all inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor. So he gives low and high status, rich and poor economics. Who's left out of this? No one, because he uses the mirrorism. But he used it in such a way, hey, high, low, you're all included in what I'm going to talk about. Psalm 50. The mighty one, God, the Lord, has spoken and summoned the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. The rising of the sun to its setting. Anything left out? No. It's a mirrorism. The next, metonymy. This is a substitution of one word for another one which is understood. We say, the White House said today. Well, anybody ever been to the White House? Have you ever stood outside waiting for it to speak? You know, this is metonymy for what the president would say. So Psalm 76, 2, he will cut off the spirit of princes. He is feared by the kings of the earth. Well, he will cut off the spirit. Well, if he's cutting off the spirit, what does that mean? He's cutting them off. So spirit just represents them. Psalm 5, 9, they flatter with their tongue. Well, that's a neat picture. You know, their tongue comes out and they flatter. It's not their tongue, but it's their what? Words. That's the metonymy. And if my favorite, if you want to sound intelligent, synecdoche. A specific part of something is taken to refer to the whole. So Psalm 50, verse 19. Let loose your mouth, let your mouth loose in evil, your tongue frames deceit. So does that mean just my tongue and my mouth? Are evil? No, it really represents the entire person. Psalm 18. You save an afflicted people, but haughty eyes you abase. So the rest of your body can be proud as long as your eyes don't give you away. Is that what God's saying? No. Where do we see pride demonstrated? In the eyes. (laughs) I am so much better than you. And you could just tell by the stature 
Personification. Attributing human characteristics to non-human entities. The heavens are telling the glory of God. Their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Now, I don't know what this guy is like in Houston. I've only been here a few times, but I went outside last night. I didn't hear anything. But now it says the heavens are telling. They have a voice. Psalm 98, let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing together for joy. Well, that's interesting. How many rivers do you know have hands? They may have legs, tributaries, but I've never seen one with hands. They have forks. They don't have hands. But what's he mean? The noise they make by just being a river as they go over the rocks is like clapping their hands. And that's how we would understand it. Anthropomorphism, attributing human qualities normally to God. O Lord, you have heard the desire of the humble. You strengthen the heart. You incline your ear. Does God have an ear? You know, we picture him like us, and it's an anthropomorphism. Psalm 51, you hide your face from my sins. This is one of the more difficult ones because I'm wondering, maybe God, we're going to see him face to face. So maybe this is not anthropomorphism at all. But many scholars will say it is. But based on what we read in Revelation, and I am jumping from the Old Testament to Revelation, we're going to see him. What are we going to see? This is a neat one. You just want to say this to your kids. Zoomorphism. Attributing characteristics of an animal to a non-animal. Psalm 91.4. He will cover you with his pinions. What's more, under his wings. So even if you didn't know what pinions were, what are pinions? Wings. And what he's trying to show is this metaphor of God taking us like a chick under the wings of the mother hen. An important one, rhetorical question. Asking a question, not for the purpose of listing an answer, but for motivating a certain feeling or response. Zogbo, rhetorical question is an insertion or an exhortation that puts it in the form of a question, but one which is really not intended to ask for information. So Psalm 8, 4. Question, what is man that you take thought of him? What's more, the son of man that you care for him? Is David really asking God, hey God, what do you really think about us? No, what he's saying is, wow, you really think of me? Yes. But on the other side of it, Psalm 22, 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's meant to motivate. Like, how could you do this and leave me here? So the rhetorical question is not looking for an answer, but looking for divine action. And we'll see that later on in Psalm 13. All right, questions, comments, criticisms. Please, can ellipses be used also to, to reinforce what's missing? Because it will force you to think of it, to, to complete it. And thus highlight it. Is yes, it possible? Ab- absolutely. 
Absolutely. Some have suggested that it's left out on purpose, and leaving it out on purpose makes us stop and think. And when we stop and think, we contemplate. Yes, that's the rhetorical purpose for using the ellipsis as well. You quote uh, Riken a lot. What would you suggest as far as uh, one of his books? He just came out with two new books, one on narrative and one on poetry. And for like the master's level students, uh, person in your church, they'd be great books for literary studies. However, I don't agree with Riken completely. He wants to get into some narrative genres like the hero story and go into Genesis, and I disagree. So like anybody, you have to use them carefully. But he's good at least pointing these things out if you want a background in understanding literary concepts of the Old Testament. What do you recommend as a book for figures of speech? That's a good one. I'm still struggling with that. And what I've done is, at least for my PhD classes, I've put together my own because I can't find anything that has them all together. Um, Watson's classic Hebrew poetry is probably one of the better ones there, and that'll deal with a number of different literary devices. What about Bullinger? Uh, Bullinger is very good. Some people find him hard to use. And plus he has so much stuff that goes into the New Testament as well. And you plus know, you have to know some of his Latin. No, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Well, you know, if you have it in Logos, sure. mm-hmm. it's much more usable, yes. much more user-friendly. Right. Yeah. Did you have a question? How do, you, how do we get his book? I, yeah, I should have brought him. I have to bring my books and my wife, and I couldn't bring both. So <laughs> I, I, didn't bring, I couldn't bring either one, um, but I should. My book would be more about the Song of Songs and literary devices there. And I'll, I'll tell you later how we can get it. It's right on Amazon or Whippenstock where I did my work on the song. But thanks for asking. Any other questions over here? Did, did you learn anything? Okay. <laughs> See, I knew this would happen with this session. And that's why I'm glad you did it just before lunch because, wow, look at he let it out early. <laughs> oh, wait, wait. Yeah, you know, we had it. I think it was Isaiah. Uh, 49 that Steve was talking about earlier, and you have to understand how some things are read by different regions of the country. There was talking about the the, the, the Gentiles or, or the Messiah would come from afar, and, or, or the Gentiles would come from afar, and that's from some East Texas pastors think that's uh, from California because <laughs> it's afar, you know, it burns hot. I just want to mention that the Lagos uh, book by Riken, to read it as literature, it's free on Lagos right now. And he's got a couple others that are like one or two dollars. So if y'all want to get it. I think those are his earlier works. He came out one sweeter than honey, which I think is his work on um, poetry and the way stories work. I think both of those were published by. Weaver Press, which I think went out of business or sold to Lexham Press, which is, I believe, Lagos uh, now. Can you suggest a commentary on the Psalms strictly from Jewish perspective? Steve might be a better one to ask. I haven't read. See, Jewish scholars don't focus on the text. Okay, we have this. I teach a class in Old Testament theology. 
and getting a Jewish scholar, just starting now in, this, in the past 10 years that we're seeing stuff written by Old Testament scholars, Jewish scholars, that are talking about the theology of the Old Testament. They don't study each other. And you hear it from Steve, who are they studying? They're studying their rabbis. Very few are going back to the text. Uh, they do have the Jewish, they do put out a Jewish study Bible that I've seen um, that had a pretty good introduction for the Psalms, but I'm not sure of any j- specific Jew that's studying the Psalms. I'm sorry. There's a, there's a Jewish commentary, set called, it's Art Scroll, and I forget what the rest, maybe anybody else know that. Um, what's interesting is it's, it's kind of a summation of everything the rabbis taught and so you can get commentary on Chronicles. They've got one on Psalms. They've got several of them, more, eight or nine in the Old Testament. But it, it summarizes. You look up any verse, and it will give you the, the various uh, rabbinical interpretations on that verse, which is sometimes helpful, interesting. Okay. Uh, so uh, just to, to answer in my uh, limited experience, um, there is a Jewish publication society has a tremendous commentary series. Um, I like the Jewish publication society very, very much. Um, I don't know that they have one on the Psalms. They have uh, every book of the Torah. They have uh, Esther. They have uh, several other uh, books, Ruth. Uh, but uh, it's one that, because you know when you commission somebody to write a commentary, it could take a decade. It, it, it's it, very so we we could be seeing the Lord return before you see a Jewish Publication Society version of a Psalms commentary. Uh, but um, uh, but sometimes the I know you're probably not happy with the Anchor uh, Bible commentaries and things, but sometimes of course the Anchor Bible commentary on Psalms actually is lousy. Uh, but uh, but sometimes you find in some of the higher critical commentaries. Um, actually, the the one that I would go for is the Alan Ross three-volume commentary set on uh, Psalms uh, because he's definitely going to be interacting with the text. I mean, like nobody's business. The thing we have to remember, too, and I, we always, let me just jump in. We always think that the Jews have something on us when it comes to understanding their own text. That's not true. They missed the Messiah, so for them to go back and get the text right... The second time, I'm somewhat suspect. I say that tongue-in-cheek a little bit, but there, there's so much time between you know, Jewish tradition now and the Jewish tradition of the Old Testament, and somehow we draw this straight line, and it's not. We don't know even what the, some of the traditions were or how they were practiced. So I want to be very, very careful. That's why I think this is so vitally important, that before you pick up any commentary, we have to understand parallelism, because we have to say, when that commentator makes a point and says, this is the right way, we have to say, no, 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 you're splitting the lines here between A and B. You can't do that. And you have to be able to interact with him that way. Somebody's in my blind side here. In the modern Jews that you've talked to, the scholars in their region, um, do you know any personal, personally if they practice interacting with God in their teachings in the spirit, not just 
the other way? I'll let Steve answer that because I don't know many. I have not interacted with Jews on that level. Repeat your question. Uh, Jewish scholars interacting in the, in the spirit? What? Yes. Um, uh, yes, like, you know, in the Christian world, well, Christian world, um, in, I think it was John 4, yeah. uh, where he, Jesus is talking to the woman at the well, and he's saying, yes, Jesus, uh, God is a spirit, so all worshipers come in spirit, and so forth. And that's what Old Testament... Um, prophets and leader, you know, certain chosen people are practiced having dialogue in the spirit with God to have these poems and everything you call. So my question, in the modern day, when you associate with scholars in Israel, do they ever share that they're ha interacting with God in spirit um, to further un to educate the public? Okay, well, uh, my, my theological answer is that any Jewish or other scholar uh, who's not uh, recognizing that uh, Yeshua, Jesus, is the Messiah, um, may think that he has the Spirit, may act as if he wants the Spirit, but does not have the Spirit, does not possess the Spirit, and therefore their scholarship is going to be limited to their own creativity and their own uh, scholarship. So... Uh, Sorry. And, it, and remember, too, they're not going to recognize that the Spirit is separated from God the Father. They believe in one, so it would be His Spirit, not what we would understand as the Holy Spirit as the third person of the Trinity. You know, one of the things that's interesting, because Steve was m mentioning this about JPS, you know, the JPS Tanakh, which came out in 85, you know how they translate the Shema? I haven't looked the Lord is our God, the Lord doesn't say the Lord is one. It says the Lord alone. Oh, yeah, because the Akkad is the is unique one. So yeah, that's right. But, yeah. but you know, that's the benchmark for arguing for a strict monotheism in Judaism. But here you have a Jewish translation that doesn't say the Lord is one. They've translated the Lord alone, which I think contextually is correct, which yeah. is really an interesting thing you can go to when talking to somebody Jewish and say, when you're talking about this, well, you know, what what about this? Absolutely. That's why the JPS is a great uh, series. Any other questions? Anybody hungry? <laughs> All right. Well, thanks. Thanks, Mark.